You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. As we continue to behold our God in the face of Jesus, let's turn to John 17. We'll be looking in verses 6 to 8. Thank you, Adam, and choir and orchestra for, for leading us and whetting our appetite for next Sunday night. Looking forward to that um, as well. Let's ask the Lord to bless this portion of our service as we hear the word preached. Father of mercy, we, we need above all things this morning to behold you. We need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes this morning. It indeed is our greatest need. We pray that you would do that through the means of preaching the word of God. Give us ears to hear, eyes to behold. And we ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in 1850, Nathaniel Hawthorne published one of the the first mass-produced books in the U.S., and it became a, a masterpiece, a literary classic, The Scarlet Letter. But lesser known was another work that he published that year, but just as provocative as The Scarlet Letter. The name of that short story was The Great Stone Face. He tells the story of of a young boy who lived in a village below a mountain. And on this mountain was an image of this glorious great stone face. And the legend was that one day a man would come who looked like the image on that mountain and he would bring great blessing to the people in that village. Well, this just captured the imagination of this young boy. And so he spent much of his time, his discretionary time, in in staring, looking upon, beholding that great stone face. He did it his entire childhood. And then his childhood issued into his young adult years. Still, the man who was supposed to come had not come. And he would stare at that great stone face until one day this young boy had, had aged to be an elderly man. And still, the great stone face had not come. But one day, he was walking through his village, and someone exclaimed, He has come, the one who is like the great stone face. You see, this man had become like what he had beheld. He had beheld that great stone face his entire life, and he had come to take on the appearance of that great stone face. So it is with us. We become like what we behold. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into that glory from one degree of glory to another. He's writing to Christians there who are beholding the glory of God that we know supremely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that is a central point, if not the central point of the scriptures, that by the Spirit, we might behold our God in Jesus Christ. Certainly John in his gospel has that as his central purpose. Perhaps there's no better text in the gospel of John for beholding than John 17. Because in John 17, we are able to see the Son of God praying to his Father. It's a remarkable text. This prayer is a part of John's gospel. And John's gospel really does have, uh, gives us the drama of dramas. Because it even begins in John chapter 1 where the Son of God comes from glory. All right? So that we who have fallen short of that glory by our sin might behold it in the face of Jesus Christ and as a result come to reflect it in our lives. Indeed, the glory of God in Jesus Christ is how he began this chapter. Uh, in chapter 17, he prays, glorify your son, verse 1, that the son may glorify you. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That was the first part of the prayer. In the first part of this prayer, he's praying for himself. Verse 6 begins the second part of his prayer that extends all the way to verse 19. We'll be just looking at the, the preamble to the second part of the prayer today, verses 6 to 8. But in verses 6 to 19, he's praying for all present disciples, the disciples of that day. In verses 20 to 26, he will pray for all future disciples disciples, all future followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the first part of this section where he prays for all the present believers, he doesn't begin by interceding for them. He'll get to that. The beginning of this second part of the prayer is him describing what a believer is. Remarkably, given the fact that we don't normally describe believers the way Jesus does in this passage. But notice the primary way he describes believers in this passage, and this is counter to our sensibilities, he describes believers as those in whom the Father has given the Son. In fact, we read that five times in this chapter, but it's found numerous times throughout the Gospel of John. And this speaks to the sovereign grace of God in saving us. When, when he uses the language of the, the ones whom the Father has given him, this is the grace, sovereign grace of God in saving sinners. Believers are not those who belong to the spiritual Mensa International Society. 
We're not spiritually more intuitive than, any, uh, than anyone else. We, we are trophies of the grace of God. But those whom the Father has given the Son have distinguishing marks. They don't go unchanged, okay? And the first thing we see here is that believers, those whom the Father has given the Son, know the Father's name. Look with me in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And so just as Jesus is a gift to us, we are a gift from the Father to the Son. And this gift was not rooted in anything intrinsic about us. We, we were a part of the wicked world. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were in rebellion to God. And God gave us to Jesus out of the world. Now, we saw last week this common phrase um, in John. But why is it important? Well, here's the reason it's important. Because every time you read about this, it's speaking about the believer's security. Now, these disciples are about to have all hell unleashed on them. Now, they will never live a comfortable moment for the rest of their lives. And knowing that they are the Father's gift to the Son would have brought great security to them when everything else was insecure. So, for instance, in John chapter 6, the first time we see this language... This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. The believer cannot lose his or her salvation. We are the Father's gift to the Son. Chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Get this. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. He's greater than all. And because we are God's gift to the Son, Jesus said he has manifested God's name to them. Now, let me speak here just for a moment on this notion of manifesting. I spoke to it a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 14 where we see that verb there as well. But there's been a rise in our culture. And the reason for this is that you hear in some pulpits that the idea that we could actually manifest reality by the things we think or the words that we speak, it's on the rise. You see it in prosperity movements, health, wealth, and prosperity pulpits that you can actually actualize reality by the things you think or the words you speak. A couple of weeks ago, Dr. Al Mohler was on one of his podcasts, was interviewing a professor named Phil Zuckerman, professor of sociology and secular studies at Pitzer College. He's not a believer, 
Uh, he advocates the secular life, a life without God, okay? But he's having this conversation with him, and they're discussing the difference between a religious person, not necessarily a Christian, but a religious person, and a secular person. And Dr. Moeller asked Dr. Zuckerman this question. He says, where do you put the idea of manifesting? And Zuckerman responded this way. That's a good question. I think it's murky and fuzzy. I get that question a lot. We hear this a lot, manifesting. Oh, you, you want that job. Well, you need to manifest it. Is that religion or is it superstition? That's a secular professor seeing that for what it is. It's too fuzzy for me. But generally, theism has to have some God component. So even the secular professor recognizes there's no, well, the only God component there is the human making him or herself out to be God rather than the living God. And so we've seen this rise in interest of this. In fact, uh, in 2006, uh, a book came out that became a bestseller. It was called The Secret. It was about this idea of manifesting. You can go on OprahDaily.com. I don't advise it. <laughs> Oprah's not the best theologian. Let's just say that. But there are seven steps for how to manifest what you want. That's not Christianity. It's paganism. It's paganism. And it's not new. It has its roots in the 19th century new thought spiritual movement that is anything but evangelical or orthodox. You need to understand that the only one who does any manifesting in the scripture is God in Jesus Christ. And here we see what he's manifesting. He is manifesting God's name to God's people. That's what he's manifesting. Uh, we, we see this idea in Hebrews. In Hebrews 2 verse 11. That is why he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you realize that your heavenly father is not Jesus? It's the first person of the Trinity. Jesus is our elder brother. All right? He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name. Who's he speaking to? The Father. I will tell of your name to my brothers. And certainly Jesus would add there his sisters. Notice, in the midst of the congregation, Jesus believed in corporate worship. I will sing your praise. And then notice verse 13, behold, I and the children God has given me. So even in Hebrews, we see that the father has given a people to the son and the son manifest the father's name to the ones given to him. The name of God is equivalent to his being. 
It's connotative. His name reveals who he is. All right? And so when Moses asked God, what is your name? He wasn't just asking an identification marker. He was asking, what kind of God are you? The name reveals his essence, his character. And so he has manifested the character of God to his people. John says in, or at least rather Jesus says in John 17 verse 26, I made known to them them your name and I will continue to make it known. Notice that the love which you have loved me, which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That is such a critical verse for us to understand that as Jesus manifests the name, that is the person, the character, the attributes, the name of God to his people, it has a transformative effect on those he manifests the name to. Again, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. But what is that name? Well, it's hard not to think about Exodus 3 when you think about that name. Because when God gave Moses that name, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. He goes on and says, this is my name forever. This is the name by which I want to be known forever. And so the central name for God is that he is Lord, all right? In fact, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has picked up on that, and he has identified himself as that Lord, distinct from the Father, but equal in essence and power and glory. So, for instance, before Abraham was, I am. He said that in John 8, 58, and they picked up stones to stone him. Because they recognized what he was saying. He was was making himself equal with the Father. Throughout the Gospel of John, you've seen Jesus say, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. So that is the central name for God. He is Lord. But here I think Jesus is saying that as the Son of God, he has manifested a new reality about what it means that God is Lord. He is our Father. He is the believer's Father. Now think about this. He's the same God of the Old Testament, but under, under the Old Covenant, believers didn't generally call him Father. He was Yahweh. He was Adonai. He was God. But they didn't know him as father. It would require a new stage of redemptive history for them to understand his fatherhood. It would require the Son of God to come. And it would be through understanding and believing in the Son that the name Father would be manifested to the believers. In fact, get this. The word Father is used 53 times in John 13 to 17. But get this, throughout the Gospel of John, it's used 100, 
and 22 times. So the father is an important concept in the gospel of John. But Jesus manifesting the name father to the disciples reminds us again with chapter 17, verse 3, of how important it is to know God. He says, this is eternal life, that, you know, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is crucial that we know him, and in this context, that we know him as Father. 50 years ago this year, in 1973, a best-selling and one of the most important theological books, if you've not read it, I highly recommend it, was published by J.I. Packer. And the name of that book, and I know many of you have read this book, was Knowing God. And in this book, he asked this question, what is a Christian? J.I. Packer's response or his answer in that book was this, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. Now that may seem simple, but that is glorious. Do you realize that we saw as early as John chapter 1 verse 12 that the first evangelical blessing for every believer is our adoption. John wrote, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then right after the resurrection, and Mary is there at the empty tomb, Jesus reveals himself to Mary in his resurrected body. What did he say to her? He, he says, my father, your father. My father, your father. And John has not left us in the dark as to the implications of what that means. First of all, let's think about what it means to the incarnate Son of God. Remember, every blessing that we have comes mediated through the Son of God. There is no evangelical blessing that you can have that's not mediated through the Son. And so anything that we have, we have through the Son. And so when we speak about the fatherhood of God, we first of all need to think about its implications for the incarnate Son of God. And John has not left us in the dark. First of all, God's fatherhood implies honor. Again, notice back in chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke in these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so th this is God coming to a world of orphans, spiritual orphans. And through this son, we have adoption. But this son is first to be honored and glorified. And anything that glorifies the son has a trickle-down effect that it's mediated through and to the believer. And so this implies honor. Secondly, it implies affection. John chapter 15, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. We have the affection of the Father. Some of you were raised in homes without fathers. Some of you were raised in homes with abusive fathers. 
And here we're told that we have the very affection of the Father, but it first comes through and to the Son. It implies fellowship. In John chapter 16, we saw this. He said, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. He's speaking to the disciples. Those are his best friends, by the way. Have you ever had your best friend turn his back or her back on you? Well, they're going to turn their back on Jesus in his most critical moment. But notice this. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. And so the fatherhood of God implies the fellowship of God. And then finally, it implies authority. Jesus in his incarnate state as the son of God on earth, John 15, 10, I have kept my father's commandments. And those implications all apply to the sons and daughters of God. So let's go through this quickly. Think about honor. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 26, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Do you get that? We're promised honor as sons and daughters of the father. Now it'll take all eternity to come to terms with what that means. But we don't have to wait until eternity to experience it. That is, he comes to spiritual orphans and he changes our destinies. He does this by taking us in, adopting us, giving us the rights of access through to his, his heart. We have right of access to his hands, that is, his works, his ears. We have his ear. We have his eyes. We have access to his table. And everything he has promised the Son as the heir of all things, we have in him. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Secondly, in Christ, we have the affection of the Father. Again, John 17, verse 23, the Father loves believers. Now, this is hard to believe here, but the word of God's our authority. The Father loves believers even as he loves his Son. Do you realize if you are in Christ today, and God is your father through Jesus Christ. He loves you as he loves his son. And every father in this room will tell you, it's hard to imagine that you can love anything more than you love your sons and daughters. And God the father loves us as he loves his son. He is all in. He is committed to your well-being. He's committed to your your future. He's committed to your flourishing. All things work together for those who are his, for those who love him. Also, it implies fellowship. Again, um, this is most clearly seen in 1 John 1, verse 3. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in this world or what happens to you, you have fellowship with the Father through the Son. The psalmist said, even if my mother and father forsake me, God has not forsaken me. God will not forsake me. We have fellowship. And then finally, it implies authority. We see this in the second part of this verse. Um, believers indeed know the father's name. But here's another mark of a believer. The believer obeys 
the Father's word. Look with me in the second part of verse, verse 6. And they have kept your word. Very simple, but to the point. They have kept your word. Now, what's remarkable about that is that throughout the Gospel of John, we have seen the weakness of their faith. We've seen how inconsistent their obedience is. So, for instance, as recently as chapter 16, verse 32, he says, you're going to scatter. In a few moments, when they come to arrest me, you're going to scatter. You're going to turn your back on me. And yet here, he says, you have, they have kept your word. This ought to encourage every believer here, because you realize more than anyone else, because you're in your body, you're in your mind, you know how inconsistent your obedience, how inconsistent your acts and works are. And they, disciples, had certainly not displayed any kind of mature and consistent obedience, but they had con committed themselves to Jesus as Lord. And that had set them apart. So, for example, when others in John chapter 6 had said that Jesus' teachings were too hard, here's what the disciples said in John 6, verse 68. You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So everyone else walked away. These disciples stayed the course. In John chapter 11, when, when he heard word in Galilee that his friend Lazarus was sick, he told his disciples, let's go back to Judea, which was a very dangerous place to be. And they all went with him. When he told them in the upper room in John 13 that he was going to lay down his life, Peter had said, I'm going to lay my life down for you. So these disciples, even though their obedience was inconsistent, they had, they had revealed themselves to be true believers. How could this be? Well, remember, back in John chapter 6, when someone asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the work of God, that you believe. And these were believers who were here with him. So fundamentally, they had kept God's word by trusting in the Son. At the moment of faith, obedience will be produced. But initially, it's very green fruit. Initially, okay, it, it's in its early stages. And so when, when sinners are converted by God's sovereign grace, two parallel changes occur in the believer's lives. One is objective and one is subjective. This is important for us to understand. The objective change is a pardon that grace brings. It's a pardon that grace brings. So when you trust in the Son, it's as if you had lived Jesus' life. All right? You have the righteousness of the Son declared to you, imputed to you. And the sins you committed, they were paid for by the Son on the cross. It was as if Jesus lived your life on the cross. 
And so there's this objective change where we have a pardon that grace brings. But then there's a subjective aspect. This is the power that grace brings. So there's a pardon that grace brings that can never be changed. But there's also now a new power that grace brings that gives you the capacity to obey. Paul calls this the obedience of faith. We could call it evangelistic or evangelical obedience. But this kind of obedience is never perfected in this life. That's why it's not the ground of your salvation. It's never perfected in this life, but for those who have trusted in the Son objectively, they've obeyed his word. We've been declared obedient in Jesus. And subjectively, there will be this increasing capacity to obey him as we progressively, as we sang this morning, behold him. So this isn't just a sheer act of the will. That's every other religion in the world. This is not a sheer act of the will. Obedience comes by the expulsive power of new affections birthed in us as we progressively behold the glory and the beauty of God in Jesus Christ. Sin, which keeps us from obeying God, offers a phantom, illusory, foe kind of beauty, but actually leads to death. Maybe you're familiar with the, the, the Greek myth, the Odyssey by own Homer. And in that Greek myth, the siren's song is so enchantingly beautiful that the sailors who are passing by in their boats would hear that beautiful song and they would, they would throw themselves, dash themselves on the rocks to get close to that beauty. It would cause destruction, but they were so enthralled by that beauty. And so there's this fellow, Ulysses, who is allured by the siren song, but he knows the danger it leads to, but he wants to get as close to it as he can. And so he places wax in his, <clears throat> in his, um, his men's ears, and he has them um, basically tie him to the mast so that he can hear the song without it causing destruction. But it did do a whole lot of damage for him. But there was a better method used, employed by Jason, of Jason and the Argonauts. As he sailed by, he had a better strategy. He would hear those siren songs, but here's what he did. He had a harp player who played a much more beautiful song than what the siren could give. And they overcame the siren songs by something more beautiful. That's what beholding does. As we see God's glory, God's beauty in Jesus Christ, we overcome all that the world has to offer us. We see it for what it is. In fact, we're going to see this in the disciples' lives. They, they are 
eat up with inconsistency until they see Jesus crucified. Until they see Jesus raised from the grave. And when they behold the, the resurrected Christ, they're willing to give their lives for him. Indeed, uh, believers obey the Father's word by this expulsive power of a new affection that comes through beholding. But finally, we come to verses 7 and 8. Believers also receive the Father's Christ. And so they know the Father's name, they obey the Father's word, and they receive the Father's Christ. Look with me in verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. So what you're going to see 14 times in the Gospel of John is that Jesus' words are the Father's words. All right? And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. you what you see there is numerous times we see Jesus is sent from or came from the Father. And they have believed that you sent me. So it's important that believers obey the Father's word, but here Jesus is stressing that the Father's word directs them to Christ himself. And so the Father has given every believer the divine resources to glorify him and enjoy him forever. We have the word of God and his word reveals to us all that Jesus has accomplished for us and all that we are in Jesus. Jim Steinmeier, I read about him recently. He was a designer of magical illusions and theatrical special effects. And he designed uh, this stagecraft device called the Dazzler. And so here's what the Dazzler does. It, it, it shines this bright light on the audience's eyes so that all that the audience can see is the Dazzler. You can't see anything else around the dazzler. All you can see is the dazzler. Of course, the purpose of that is so that the magicians could do their things without you noticing it because you're fixated on the dazzler. And Jesus is saying here, metaphorically speaking, he is the dazzler of scripture. He is the dazzler. He is scripture's dazzler. He wants us to fixate on him so that you don't see anything else but him. But why do we need to fixate on him as we close here? Because we've already seen everything you have given me is from you. And so the grace of Christ is the Father's grace. The power of Christ that you depend on every day is the Father's power. The truth of Christ is the Father's truth. And the blood of Christ, which cleanses you from all iniquity, is from the God who forgives you through that, that blood. In Jesus, the Father adopts us. 
We can't even imagine all that that entails, but we're no longer orphans. One of our biggest problems is we still think like orphans. And that's why the word of God comes on a salvation mission, a salvage mission to restore sanity to our minds. He's adopted us. He's given us right of access to the father, to his heart, to his hands, to his eyes. He, he sees everything. To his ears, we have access to him. And he has promised us everything that he has promised his son. We are joint heirs with the heir. And it's in beholding him and beholding all the realities that he has secured for us that we are conformed into his image. That's why this passage is so very important for our believers this morning. Behold the Christ. That is your duty every day. Wake up every morning with an open Bible and stare at God's glory in Jesus until you see it. But as Adam and the musicians come forward, we realize some of you, that glory is still eclipsed like a solar or a lunar eclipse. You can't see it because you don't have eyes to see. But here's the glory of, of prayer. This is the glory of crying out for mercy. If you don't see God's glory this morning in the face of Jesus, all you have to do is ask him for it. Lord, show me your glory. Show me my need for, for Jesus as Savior. Give me a heart that would embrace him. Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. I am broken. I have made a shipwreck of my life. But I believe that Jesus Christ came to save me. I believe that Jesus Christ came and on the cross, he took the judgment that I deserve for my sin. I believe he was raised from the grave so that I might have the forgiveness of sins. And I want to trust in him this morning. Won't you respond to Jesus this morning, the great dazzler of scripture? Fix your eyes on him. Come to Christ. Obey him through obedience of faith and your sins will be forgiven. We're going to have pastors here at the end of these aisles. We'd love to pray with you. We would love to speak to you about uh, these gospel realities, whatever the need is this morning. Won't you come as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.